Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the studio, socially distanced from Mike, uh, across several large tables put together uh, in a square to keep us safe. To be fair, I stay six feet away from Wade generally anyway. It does seem like to be a a general practice that Mike does have. (laughs) And we're going to be recording today several podcast sessions. Uh, These will be for... Philosophy 201, Ethics at Wisconsin Lutheran College. This is part of our COVID-19 series for online learning. And we're going to be now in the uh, uh, Gilbert Mylander book, M-E-I-L-A-E-N-D-E-R, Bioethics, the third edition, Bioethics, a Primer for Christians. Uh, It's a book I recommend uh, if you are interested in bioethical issues. One of the reasons I like it is it's uh, ethics is as the course stands at the college is a philosophy course and bioethics is a component of it, but it's not the main driving force. Uh, we look especially in classical philosophy and theological ethics. Um, but it does a good job of, of kind of coming at it from an apolo- unapologetically Christian perspective, but I would say in a very balanced and fair, nuanced way as well. So what Mylander will basically say is, uh, here's some questions Christians especially are going to want to think about when it comes to these different bioethical issues. He'll present general questions that probably everyone should want to think about. But then he's going to say, for Christians, if you're honest with yourself, if you're, if you're honest with your faith, um, here's going to be some added things for you to think about. It is uh, um, not heavy in a lot of case studies. It is not written to be canon law. It's not in every situation. Here's the answer. It's definitely big picture. Um, for these issues, here are some, some big questions to ask. And then when there's, when there's clear answers, he, he will tend to give those. Uh, when there's not, he'll tend to kind of uh, lead us to consider what there is to, to consider. But it's definitely a primer as well. And so uh, this is a class that has students from a variety of majors, uh, whether that be theology, history, um, business, education, or in the sciences, biology, nursing, chemistry. Uh, there could be all sorts. Um, and so this is a, a helpful book for people from diverse backgrounds as well, for when he gets to some of the more technical stuff. If you are just a listener, um, and not just a listener, listeners are the best, right? So I don't mean that like uh, mm-hmm. in a negative way. Uh, it is a book that's not that expensive, and uh, um, it, it's not a bad read if you would, would like to pick something up on bioethics. Uh, it's basically 131 pages. If you're a pastor... Um, Mike, I think you said you did a Bible study on well, this. Well, when you when you said let's let's do this, I uh, had to look back. I, I'm one of those guys that writes the date when I bought the book. Yeah, and I it was 2006, and I think I did a Bible class off of this. It would have been probably my second year as a pastor, so I'm sure it was really good. Um, yeah, but it was like one of those. Probably someone said we need a Bible class on that, and I'm like, well, I need to buy a book on that. And so, yeah. Lander is. I mean, he was on. He's a Missouri Synod yeah, uh, person, at but he was a part of the council for, I believe, George Bush, mm-hmm. um, uh, whatever that council was called uh, on the back. It says that, I think, uh, Christian, the uh, President's Council on Bioethics. So he's rubbing shoulders with 
with some pretty important people and able to navigate this. And I, I really like your opening description there that he doesn't go too far. Right. And, and this is coming off of like when we were first out in the parish, you still had the Shivo case. Terry Shivo, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and you had people really drawing some lines in the sand there. And I think it was refreshing for, for Gilbert, I think, at least from my point of view, to not re- really make so much so many judgments when when things were maybe less clear, right? He's big picture that way. So, Yeah, and so I, I would say for pastors, too, then, it's not a bad book to get if you'd kind of like to do a, a Bible class sometime on, on bioethics. It's a helpful book to have for an overview. Now, that's not to say on every um, issue I'm going to agree with Mylander 100%. Um, but more often than not, I'm going to appreciate his take and in, in how he gets there. Uh, students at this point have read the introduction for themselves. Uh, just the, the, the takeaway line I would hit on in the introduction before we get into the first two chapters today. Um, and Mike, my levels are coming through okay, right? My, yeah, we're good. Okay, my your things are a little quiet now. Um, is, uh, is he says at the end of the introduction, the problems may often be new and driven by technological advance, but the search for human wisdom and faithful insight requires of us a longer memory and a more expansive vision. And I think that's something just that in general that we try to do with the podcast. I would say Mike is uh, a longer memory, so to, to look back to the to history and to the communion of saints and a more expansive vision to, uh, to maybe ask ourselves where we're missing things, where we're not asking questions that we should. And I think this is something that's helpful for, for all Christians uh, and non-Christians alike to keep in mind. The, uh, the first chapter, chapter one, is a, uh, a Christian vision and he's going to hit on a number of his kind of key underlining, underlying points for what will follow in here, um, probably more so than he did in the, in the introduction. And so uh, is yours third edition or yours looks different? Oh, color, I, color I'm color? mine probably still first edition, I'm guessing. I think it says on the going on the second on the, edition. Okay. Yeah. Um, I apologize for having the sniffles too, my... Uh, I've had my allergies bothering me, and then yesterday I was laid up pretty good with a with a toothache. Mike thinks I should go to the the dentist, but I think this is unwise. Well, I'm wondering if at the end of this bioethics book you will be more inclined to go to no. our medical field. I've or not. been to the uh, Doctor John- dentist. I would say in 16 years, Doctor Johnston. Doctor Johnson um, only sees doctors in the. Uh, WLC faculty. He doesn't go to any other doctors. I, I I go to the ER. That's the one I'll go to. It's so like with my knee, I went to the ER. Is your allergist a doctor? I do go to allergy asthma doctor, but they don't do anything bad to you. They give you allergy shots. Mm-hmm. He doesn't judge me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing he does is that painful. The breathalyzer machine's kind of fun. I would I would encourage you to maybe go to the doctor once in a while. I appreciate that. I just, uh, would you pull out the tooth for me if it came to it? If it was loose enough. You know, I'm not yanking. I'm not, I'm not stepping on your shoulders and yanking, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're lying down. Out of the four of us from the podcast, who do you think would be most likely to just yank it out? I think Peter's. Uh, I'll go with Peter too. I think Peter's got that. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I think Ben would have opinions on how to best do it. But I think Peter would have the more like. Ben would explain it away why he shouldn't do it. Right. And Peter would just. 
be willing to do it. I'd be like, I'm kind of a wuss. I don't want to do it. Yeah. I wouldn't pull out anybody's tooth. No, you wouldn't. All right. Um, But in Christian vision, uh, on the first page, this is what Mylander has to say. He says, how we understand such principles and how we understand the situations we encounter will depend on background beliefs that we bring to moral reflection. Beliefs about the meaning of human life, the significance of suffering and dying, and the ultimate context in which to understand our being and doing. Our views of such matters are shaped by reasoned argument and reflection less often than we'd like to imagine. Mike, you see where I'm at there? Yeah. And any thoughts you have on that? Our views on such matters are shaped by reason, argument, and reflection less often than we might like to imagine. I think you were hitting on that maybe a little bit even with the Terry Schiavo stuff. Yeah, I think especially when it comes to a political kind of situation uh, like that Schiavo case was, uh, we tend to uh, align ourselves with our group, right? Um, at the same time, you know, uh, whenever we look at these bioethical situations, so let's think about a specific situation, like somebody um, who is in a coma and has very little hope of recovery, or it could be it could be any 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 situation like that. We usually have a gut instinct, and that's not necessarily wrong to follow that gut instinct uh, to a certain point. You know, I, there's cer- certain things where you go this just doesn't, this smells like plain like God, right? And I don't like that. And, and yet there are certain situations when I get more in depth into the actual technology of stuff like uh, genetic engineering kind of stuff. And I go, okay, maybe there are certain situations where that would be okay, at least a court, at least it wouldn't bother my conscience kind of thing, right? So I, I think first, our gut instincts aren't necessarily bad especially if you're coming from a Christian point of view where you're saying, man, this seems like you're playing God. This seems like you're, you're playing a mad scientist here. At the same time, we have to check ourselves and say, maybe I don't have all the information. And also that I don't let politics get in the way of this kind of stuff. Um, I usually, you know, it's like, well, you're either a Republican or a Democrat on this thing. Well, hold on. Let's let the, the facts actually kind of uh, lead our way. For instance, you know, when, when it comes to euthanasia, um, you know, I, I'm not for euthanasia I, and, and, and something smells a little wrong in certain those cases or whatever, but I should not draw the line and say, all those people are like just these, you know, there's death panels and all this no, kind of easy. stuff. Like these people really, most of them are really moved by compassion, right? right. But they have a different worldview. They have a different understanding of suffering. Understanding of suffering, especially that's the huge one, but also maybe an understanding of what human life is. And so I, I think we could all just use uh, on both sides of all of these uh, uh, issues, just use a little bit of not just common sense, but a little bit of charity as well, too. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and what I would often say to people dealing with certain issues like this is, look, let's look through all of the the facts as best we can. Let's ask ourselves this question. Are we playing God either way? Um, are we uh, are we not trusting God in a certain way? And then uh, to also ask ourselves the this question, like, well, not ask this question, but f- from me, the pastor, to say, follow your conscience, follow the word of God, and then say, Lord, have mercy, mm-hmm. right? And say. Finally, this is this is a forgiving, loving God, right? And and there are there are some gray areas there, and uh, trust in God and say, Lord, have mercy. 
And there's going to be time, times that pastors uh, who may be listening can testify to as well when there's, there's not a clear right or wrong and a family may not all be on the same page on what decisions should be made for a loved one. And so these are difficult topics and they're worth keeping in mind. A big thing that's going to come up then in what follows is going to be individual and community, right? Um, and Mylander wants us to respect individual autonomy. Um, that is that people should be self-governing to the extent that they can be and that they can be well-informed and be in that position to make decisions. Um, but he also recognizes that people are not completely autonomous, right? Um, as much as we'd like to think we all forge our own paths and you know fly our own flags and do our own things, we know that's simply not the case. None of us have gotten to where we are today completely alone. Um, and especially for Christians, this, this question of individual and community um, can't be addressed without talking about baptism, right? Baptism is an individual event. Uh, it, it happens for an individual but it's also entrance into a community. And so you were baptized, if you are a Christian listening, in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit. And yet when the Christian community gathers um, for corporate worship, what do they begin in? In that very same thing, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so when Christians deal with individuals, they recognize that individuals are also then part of community. Um, which means we have a responsibility to them, um, and that means that I, as a as an individual, have responsibility to others. Um, connected to this is the idea then of person, right? That the individual is a someone, that they are person, and if they are person, if they are a someone, for the Christian, this will be definitive of how we deal with someone. Um, because they are a, a someone. And here I think this has been something that I've noticed has been very interesting with the, the, the pandemic, Mike, and maybe you can comment on it if you want. Um, and I know I, I was teasing you a little bit about Harbaugh the other day, um, <laughs> not about what he said, but uh, about how well that would go over in Ann Arbor. Um, but it is interesting. We've been, and I think this is a good thing, as a society, we've been willing to shut down a lot of stuff and set before us a lot of potential hardship um, because of, uh, in many ways, the least of these, right? Mm -hmm. Our more elderly members, our, um, uh, our fellow citizens with uh, um, pre-existing conditions, the immunocompromised. Um, we have told young people who are not likely to die from this to not go do young people stuff and young people stuff that might be very important to them. It could be graduations, you know. Um, and take an economic hit, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's going to be people who lose jobs and have lost, but I mean permanently lose jobs because of this. Um, because of, right, we know that if the medical system is, now, some of this is selfish. I know the medical system might be overwhelmed, and I, if I finally have to go in because my whole mouth is infected, mm -hmm. um, I want to be able to get into the ER, or I don't want to have civil unrest. But to a great extent, it is too. I, people will, you, I hear people say, I don't want my grandma to die. I don't mm -hmm. want... Um, that idea of personhood or someoneness, I think we've expressed a good understanding of it, um, at least in this specific instance, when it comes to coronavirus. And this is going to be something that Mylander... And we don't have to take this right to abortion, although Harbo was mm -hmm. comment, commenting about mm -hmm. abortion. Um, it... Uh, I bet Harbaugh could probably actually 
beat the pro-choice camp, by the way, because it's not ranked, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, but uh, um, but I, I do think uh, it's something that Mylander would have us extend into all areas of life as well, too. I'll let you go anywhere you want. Well, it's interesting. That you, you know, <laughs> in, in our political system where there seems to be two choices, right? You, you're either left or right. Right. And are you saying you're right or just? No, I was correct? agreeing with you. Okay, correct. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I always thought like when you pick a chi- cho- uh, side, you have to also choose which uh, which commandments are you going to try to ignore, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, if I pick the Democratic side, um, you know, from our perspective, from a uh, for lack of a better term, a conservative Christian point of view, you know. You know the 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 fifth and sixth um, commandments seem to not be that big of a deal uh, to the left, at least from our point of view, right? Um, but if you if you choose um, if you choose the the right, if you choose Republican side, you kind of have to um, sort of ignore a, a broader seventh commandment, right? You know, I mean, there's there's greed and and uh, there is injustice in, in the world. Uh, and maybe even sometimes, maybe even the fourth commandment, although let's not go down that, down that road. So it's interesting when you have a pandemic like this or any kind of big situation, political situation or cultural situation, to watch how people react, right? It should be uh, the people on the pro-life side who are saying, oh my goodness, stop everything because of the life of those who are but it's the people on the left that generally are and and often not always i'm not saying everybody but there are people on the right who are going to choose often under the guise of religious freedom but really more of a libertarian don't tell me what to do kind of thing that are like it's not a big deal people die all all the time and, and i'm not telling you which side i'm on which way i lean i go Day to day, I'm going back and forth. I have forth, heard Mike. You know, I, I have heard uh, the pendulum swinging. Yes, uh, the pendulum swinging. I, I think it's it. It can be both. Can be equally true that we're freaking out too much and that nobody should go outside. I think those are both both true at the same time. Those aren't. I don't think polar opposites. Um, but it's interesting that sometimes we choose. We probably both agree that we should up our medical infrastructure game. Yeah, um, I think everybody on every side should just kind of right. agree with that. So. It's just interesting that, and this goes back to your original point about, you know, how, how or, or Mylander's original point about, you know, sometimes our reason, we're, we're not as reasonable as we think we are, that we tend to say this economic thing or this personal freedom thing is more important. And, and then we tend to not follow maybe what we uh, have portrayed ourselves to be out in the public. Right. And that's true of left and right on a number of issues. Right. So I, I, I'm just saying this is more kind of an interesting thing as you see people say, well, I'm going to I'm going to ignore or explain away this uh, ethical duty. <laughs> right. For another one. And uh, that that's what makes, I think, bioethics, but all ethics sometimes kind of difficult is you seem to be picking and choosing which ethical thing you want to uh, abide by and then you try to explain away the other way usually under this political pressure right and and i think that can be dangerous yeah so where he's gonna he's gonna go from that too 
is the idea then too that I, I don't exist only for myself, um, but also then for my neighbor. And he's going to use a term that in ethics hopefully we're familiar with from the section on Kant, um, that for the Christian, um, ethics will be, uh, an ethics shaped by Christian vision will be deontological. And that means that it's duty or responsibility bound, that I have a duty or responsibility to my neighbor. And so this individual and community relationship is brought together, that, uh, that I will uh, want to do what is right in a set situation. The challenge will come, as he will point out later, is that what's right is not always clear. Um, but he mentioned something regarding freedom off of that that I thought maybe we might comment on, Mike, on page five then, uh, two lines before he has the subheading there, person and, and body. He says, the only freedom worth having, a freedom that does not finally trivialize our choices, is a freedom that acknowledges its limits uh, and does not seek to be godlike. And you mentioned that, you know, Mike, before of not wanting to be godlike. Um, and that maybe that's a good reminder for Christians that our freedom as Christians is freedom in Christ mm-hmm. and, and from God. Um, it's freedom from Adam and Eve's sin of wanting to be like God. And so it's really a surrendering of freedom and a return to slavery um, when we want a freedom that is, is God-like. And so this is a reminder that for the Christian in bioethics, we're always going to want to remember that we're a creature, not creator. Um, the creator has given us marvelous abilities to do things. You look at even today in the midst of the pandemic, still all the things that are able to be treated and the people who are able to be kept alive, um, but no one involved in that create that equation besides God is God. Um, and I think that is an important, both for the American sense of freedom, but also in the Christian sense of freedom. I don't know if you have anything on that, Mike. Or- yeah, we talk about this a lot. What is what is freedom? You know, if you if you think freedom is to do whatever you want, however you want, with whomever you want, as often as you want, that maybe is just as an, an addiction to sin. And so, freedom in Christ means something else. It means freedom from sin and freedom to love others, right? And so, my deontological ethic, which is which is based on duty and obligation, as opposed to kind of like a uh, pragmatic maybe ethic, whatever works. Utilitarian. Or yeah, like a utilitarian type type idea. Um, like a, of John Stuart Mill. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so my freedom is, is to be somebody in Christ. And I'm a somebody just as somebody else is a somebody and not a thing to be used in a utilitarian, right, use, utilitarian way. And so my ethics then are going to be uh, person-centered and therefore going to be duty-centered as well. And notice, you only have this if you have freedom in Christ. Because if I don't have freedom in Christ, I'm really trying to figure out who I am and what my value is as an individual person. And then it, I start to look at other people as things to use, right? Even even if it, even if it's a Mother Teresa way, right? And I'm not bad, you I'm Mother Teresa. What I mean by that is doing good so that I can be good, right? And then I'm still using those people, right? It's not it it, it and that's your own kind of prison, right? Yep. So I think I. I mean, if I had to write this book, and I, I never would have been asked to write this book for many reasons, but 
It'd have been nice for him to expand that a little bit more, I think, and then ground that into in the gospel. Yeah, and, and there's going to be, with it being a primer, I will say in, in several sections, there's places where you, you just would like more. Um, <clears throat> but I suppose then it stops being, being a, a primer. primer. Yeah. So um, he then is going to build off person and body. And just to be clear for ethics students, this is not Mike and I going to regurgitate the whole reading for you. Um, so if there's no point of reading, you're doing the reading and taking notes. We just want to get at a couple big picture type ideas. Um, but something he's going to get at then is dependence and suffering. And the first part that as a baptized child of God, I am put in a position, or I shouldn't even say I'm put in a position. I am privileged to recognize my position of dependence. Uh, my position of dependence on God. And as a reflection of my position of dependence upon God, my position of dependence upon others who through vocation are mass of God. Right? Um, and going with that then, with my creatureliness, is that I also then need to understand and accept that in a fallen world, as a creature, I will be subject to suffering and others will be subject to suffering. Now, in my suffering, vocationally, God has given me people to love and help and serve um, me as, as possible and to try to alleviate suffering when it's possible. And he's given me to do that for others. But even in that, um, as a creature, as one who is dependent, I will need to uh, recognize that there will be limits um, to what I can or will do for others and so he points out part of the pain of human life, this is page 8, is that we sometimes cannot and at other times ought not do for others what they fervently desire. Um, suffering, our, our neighbor should always, loving and serving our neighbor should always be the end goal. Um, and so when our neighbor suffers, we keep our eyes on our neighbor and we try to help with the suffering. But when suffering itself becomes the main goal to... Um, that can sometimes happen at the cost of our neighbor, even when our, um, you know, uh, our neighbor might be asking us to do something in that regard that is that is is not right. Um, you know, if I get to where my toothache gets so bad, I say, Mike will just end my suffering. Um, Mike, because he loves me, is not going to shoot me or put me down. I would hope. Um, are you, Mike? Um. I don't know that I can make any kind of judgment right now being outside. I don't That's like those true. kinds of ethical questions yeah. that, you know, that utilitarian type. Yeah. Of, yeah. But, um, well, what I want to get at is um, we, we need to recognize we can't always stand as God over suffering. Um, and so we treat our neighbor in the midst of it. Um, but we try to do what is in accord with our neighbor's honor um, and with God's expressed will. And we recognize then also that in a fallen world, um, God can work through suffering. So this is not to say we, we seek out suffering, that suffering is an end goal for us, um, but that we recognize that, that suffering is something that will be here. Uh, Mylander says on page 7, suffering is not a good thing, not something one ought to seek for oneself or others, but it is an evil, evil out of which the God revealed in the crucified and risen Jesus can bring good. And I think there is a, a helpful f reminder for us as Christians, uh, both of our dependence and on 
life in a fallen world. Anything you have on that, Mike? Well, I, the, the suffering thing is a really important thing because it'll, it'll, so many of our ethical, especially bioethical concerns are suffering's bad and the suffering, right? And if you don't have a philosophy of suffering, a theology of suffering, if you can't see a purpose in suffering, um, well, you start pulling that string and you're like, well, probably 60% of our of us should just probably end our lives. Or we have a kind of a built-in excuse to end our lives, right? And it's um, that's why I think Christianity and specifically the cross is just so such a such a needed doctrine today, right? Um, because I, I think modern technology gets us to a point where we're like, okay, we're we're really even in the midst of our pandemic, we're like, well, just give us six months and we'll figure it out. Well, suffering's still going to happen after that, right? Yeah. And you realize that the modern world has not alleviated this suffering. And in fact, in some ways, this has exposed suffering that you look at communities that have been especially hard hit by this, for instance, and you realize they've been especially hard hit because they've been suffering in all these right. other ways as right. well. So that's what, this is actually one of the, the benefits of kind of a postmodern turn after modernity is we're acutely aware of suffering. And, and that's actually probably a good thing. And, and in the church, hopefully we're moving away from kind of a prosperity gospel to, oh, this thing called the theology of the cross that we just kind of sort of ignored for, I don't know how many generations. So it's hard to, and I'm glad he put suffering in the first chapter. It's hard to think about ethics without a proper understanding of what suffering is and where it comes from. And I would say too, um, and Mike, you can, you can disagree with me if this isn't your experience. Um, but I would say in the parish and here at the college and interacting with people who are good Christians um, and have been faithful Christians their whole lives, suffering is one of the hardest things still for them to wrap their head around. Mm -hmm. um, often where it really comes down to one questioning God, it's prompted by or impacted, shaped by um, suffering mm -hmm. because it uh we don't want to see people suffer the same as we don't want to see them die and it can be really hard and i would i would guess in apologetics when you talk about the problem of evil and stuff like that right this is yeah. some of the hardest questions come from well if it's a good god how mm -hmm. can we um and so i think it yeah mylander puts it early because if we don't recognize that it's not the there's no ethical answer that will get rid of suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. um, rather, the ethics are how do you help the one who is suffering? And and you notice well, you can already notice right here a law gospel thing, right? right? That we don't we don't we don't figure this stuff out. We're we're not able to overcome this, right? And so the question is, how do we overcome? Well, we're not going to be. And so yeah. that, you have a different ethical take on a lot of, a lot of issues. And, and, and the thing is too, and what are we at time wise, Mike, on the, on the Zoom? 30. Okay, good. The thing is too, that we always think this next thing we eliminate, that'll get rid of suffering. But in many ways you look at, um, I mean, just look at the West today. It's healthier, well, not, not in this exact moment, but mm -hmm. healthier, wealthier in general than it's, it's been in all of history. And suicide rates are not going down. Mm -hmm. um, clinical depression and anxiety has not been eliminated. Family life is not necessarily more fulfilled than it was in more trying times. Um, 
people are not necessarily uh, feeling more anchored and, and uh, secure uh, in, in many ways, in, you know, in these things, tensions have only heightened. And yet we, all, we still keep that quest going of the next thing that'll do it. Um, and, you know, there's a reason, I think, that some t you read about kind of the great figures of the church in the past, and they always come to this point where they're like, they're ready to die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you go, you know, especially the, when we're younger, uh, you go, why would you ever want to be like that? Like, if your life's ahead of you, well, at a certain point you go, like, this is a good world. This is a really good world. And God has given me good things and good neighbors. Um, but this world can never be the telos, mm -hmm. right? It can never be And we instinctively understand that. Everybody instinctively understands that, uh, that we at least want something better. And yeah. to come to kind of despair of this world, then, is to receive this world as a gift, right? Mm -hmm. And... And so I think with suffering, that's the hard part of it, is suffering bids us, calls us to let go of things that we hold dear. Um, and what's one of the biggest things that we struggle with in suffering is losing our independence, which is my, why Mylander led with um, the baptismal relationship as one of dependence. Um, to grow in faith is to grow in dependence on God. Uh, it might sound odd a little bit how I've broken things up, but I want to take briefly with this the next chapter, which is procreation versus reproduction. And then in the, the next session, we're going to take um, chapters three and four, which will be abortion and genetic advance. But the reason I want to take procreation versus reproduction here is I think, A, conceptually, once you wrap your head around it, it's pretty straightforward and makes sense. But B, I think what he's doing here ties into kind of the person, the someone idea, um, the dependence upon God idea that's in chapter one and that out of everything, that of which everything flows. So I don't want us to go too long on this because I want to keep these to classes about 50 minutes. So if I can keep these to 50 minutes or shorter, that's great. But um, this, this big distinction that he's going to make in this chapter, which I think is a very helpful distinction um, and usually some very good conversations with students, which by the way, I'm missing. Yeah. I miss the back and forth of our classroom. Um, on the whole, we have good students, and there's usually good discussion. Um, if I can just briefly take apart these words, then maybe, Mike, I'll throw it to you. But if you think of how people talk about children coming into the world, um, historically, you would have heard a lot more talk of procreation, right? That we are part of God's creative act, that God is working through father and mother to bring life. And now you hear often about reproduction or reproductive rights, um, reproductive health. And Mylander says this is important, this shift that's taken place in language. Reproduction is a technological term. It's an industrial revolution term of production. It's a manufacturing type idea. And the emphasis behind it is on us, our agency, right? Um, so we're going to decide when to reproduce, how, when, increasingly what to reproduce. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as opposed to procreation, the, the emphasis on um, the child is gift, right? That, that we're privileged to be part of God's creative act and then we receive the child as, as gift. 
And this emphasis on reproduction has then led to a, a consumer mindset in what used to be one of the areas of life where you would just step back and, uh, and marvel. Just think of in history even, Henry VIII or, or all the squabbles in the past or the concerns about having an heir, having progeny, and how people would pray for children and wait. And, um, and, and now the emphasis is on how we, we bring this uh, about. And so he has uh, three kinds of moral significance to these terms he's going to talk about. He says, first, um, because we are not just free spirits, but also animals, we need to know ourselves as embodied creatures who occupy a fixed place in the generations of humankind. And so we ought not forget our creaturely relationship to what has gone before us and what is around us. Second, he says, the second is on 14, there is a second sort of moral significance to be discerned in the biological tie that binds parents and children, that the sexual union of a man and a woman is naturally ordered toward the birth of children is in itself, in itself simple biological fact, <clears throat> but we may see in that fact a lesson to be learned, and he'll go on and say, the child is God's yes to such mutual self-giving. So the child as, as God's yes to the creative act of father and, and mother. Um, so there's the, the vertical dynamic that now comes in. There's horizontal connectedness to the past and the neighbor, and then vertical with God. And then third, he said, this close connection of marital love and procreation is a third aspect of the human. Personal significance is to be discerned in the givenness of the biological tie between the generations um, that biologically as well, um, not just socially, think of people, you know, you do Ancestry.com or whatever it is, right? There's, um, there are ties that are natural to a familial line. Um, that it's not simply, uh, biology is not simply the, the mad scientist, um, but there's a, a, a spiritual and corporal reality that is in play in this. Um, so a child who is thus begotten, not made, embodies the union of his father and mother. They have not re simply reproduced themselves, nor are they merely a cause of which the child is an, uh, an effect, Rather, the power of their mutual love has given rise to another who, though different from them and equal to dignity to them, manifests in his person the love that unites them. So this is truly then procreation. Um, anything on, on Mike, reproduction versus procreation, or um, and if we go a little long on this one, it's okay because the next one's going to be shorter. But anything that stands out, I just think it's, A, I just love when people latch on to like terms in common parlance mm -hmm. and say Point out the the uh, the impact of a shift we see, but anything that stands yeah, out. Yeah, I, st I still remember when I first got this book. I'm like, why didn't I see that in these words that are so obvious for all these years, right? So that was a light bulb moment for me that that shouldn't have <laughs> been a light bulb uh, moment. That's that's um, every day for me when I read. <laughs> that's right. So just a few items uh, I jotted down while you were talking. Um, the desire to have children and your own children is is still there, right? I mean, despite that we have talked about this in a mechanical... It, reproduction, you're right, it's an indus, It's a modernity word, right? And procreation is a pre-modern word, right? And so, uh, but the desire for, especially for women to have children is, is still there. And, and I, when I'm, I'm doing the basic uh, uh, introduction to scripture, 
you, you know, uh, going through the Old Testament, you don't go very far without finding, here's another barren woman, right? Here's another barren woman. And it's one of those points where I have to explain to the children, like, that was a different time, and yet not so different than, than our time. It was a different time that having a child was a big stinking deal. And... And if you didn't have a child, you were looked upon as a curse. And of course, the idea of a male child, you're talking about a, a woman having a male child. There's a certain amount of power there. All the, yeah. Try to explain this ancient Near East to them. But then I'll stop. Or, or even early modern Europe. Yeah. And, and, and just to stop and say, listen, here's the deal. I know this is going to sound, you know, old fashioned and whatever, and maybe even misogynistic or whatever. But I've sat in my office as a pastor enough times with women who could not have children with tears running down their cheeks. Uh, this is a, this is, this is a still a thing, right? And, and it's a, and it's a, and it's a good thing. And so that idea of the passion, that idea of love, that idea of something beyond is a big deal. In fact, I'll often say too, when it, when it comes to, we talk about sixth commandment or, or whatever and talk about sex and, and say, you can't tell me that this is not a soul thing, right? And I can remember one uh, person who had a child um, in, in our class out of wedlock and, uh, and uh, didn't pay attention much, much in class. Um, she was a fine student, but she perked up and looked right at me when I said that and just nodded her head. Like, this is not just a mechanical thing. This is a soul thing when it comes to sex and children being a part of that. Um, the other thing I, I was thinking about is the idea of reproduction not only insults the child, you are a product that has been made. We make things, right? right? But it also insults the parent because they are a part of this creative process, right? And, and when I talk about vocation, I, I talk about the vocation of mother. And I'm like, we just stop and think about that God, that God used you to create something, a soul and a body. I mean, just... You can't get much, you know, you can't get much better than that. You can't have a higher calling than that. Um, so there are just kind of a few things with that, those words, procreation and reproduction, that, by the way, we all kind of naturally feel like when you teach us, I bet you it's, it's not so much that you have to say, okay, here's right or wrong. You just kind of pull out what they're already thinking as right. human beings. Yeah. And, and the challenge comes, and, and you hit at it a little bit, Mike, Precisely in the issues, and, and we're not going to hit them all right now, but for students who are reading or for others who choose to get the book, this is where Mylander will hit a little bit on surrogacy, assisted reproduction, and third parties. And the challenges will come even in, with the students, right? The hardest part for us to wrestle with as a class is at that point where, like you said, the mother who can't have children wants a good thing. <laughs> it is good that, or the couple, right? Sometimes the, the husband... Um, they know is the one who can't have have uh, have children is and so um, this uh, they want a good thing, and it is painful to say no to a, a good thing, to say no to someone who wants a good thing, and so sometimes you will have couples who desperately want a good thing, but then from a Christian perspective, if they're Christians, right? We're not making rules for everyone else necessarily to say that way of going about it is problematic. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the ways that people will want to address these things when they can't have a good thing 
um, is 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 not always in keeping with the procreative concept. It's not always respectful of the horizontal nature of um, your relationship, your kinship to others and to spouse um, or to God who is co-creator or the creator through whom we work um, or with spouse with, with whom uh, the child is a reflection of that mutual kind of self-giving love. And so when it comes to surrogacy and third-party stuff, uh, Christians will have questions to wrestle with of what does it mean to 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 uh, interject or introduce a third party into this equation. What does it mean about the relationship of parent and child, of God and couple, of kinship, of relationship? Uh, and this is not to say, too, I always have to say when we go through this book, this is not, plenty of us might know people who have made various decisions in life. This is not something we're going through at this point now to shame anyone. It's just sometimes you can't talk about things without recognizing some might be hurt by the decisions they've made. If, if someone has had a child uh, through a surrogate, that child is a blessing from God. That's the wonderful truth of Christianity. Every child is a blessing from God. <clears throat> um, and, and if any decisions that were made that perhaps weren't wholly in line with God's will, well, there's forgiveness and grace for that. But as we talk big picture concepts, um, this idea of procreation and reproduction uh, can be very helpful to keep in mind. How do we best honor all the aspects of relationship that are involved in procreation? Yeah, can I interject with one thing? I really, it's yep. kind of a striking, because it's a striking phrase that he uses. Uh, it just seems out of place in a kind of cold book on bioethics, but it really isn't. Uh, he said, um, uh, the lines of kinship are blurred and confused. The child begins to resemble a product of our wills rather than the offspring of our passion, right? And yeah. he's not afraid to say this passion. And what he means by passion here is not just an animalistic whatever. It is uh, the passion that a man and a woman have in the bounds of marriage, um, which are something that something you, you, you don't really understand unless you're actually in it, right? Yeah. And so uh, there you're expecting something like cold, hard, mechanical, ethical book on bioethics. And he's talking about the passion of two people. That's a big deal when it comes to then how they look at their children. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and as you said, every, every child's a gift. And, and, and even if things aren't done ideally, you know, you think of adoption as a, as a, the picture of adoption in the Bible is a one of salvation and that that has its own unique kind of thing for an adoptive parent that I can't explain. I'm sure somebody who's adopted a child can't explain that. But I would also say that to have your own child as a product of product, <laughs> as a gift of, as a result of a, a, a passionate love has its own kind of reward. It has its own kind of way of looking at it. So uh, it's interesting that he used those words, I thought, when I reread that. Yeah, and I, I think this reproduction, procreation um, imagery is, is, is a good one to keep in mind as we make our way into the next chapters. Um, Mike, I thank you for joining me for this one. Um, I'm guessing we're at about time, 15 minutes or so. Um, so we will wrap things up for now. Mike and I are going to continue recording today, and we're going to make our way next into abortion and um, genetic advancement. But hopefully the principles we talked about in this one 
um, you can keep in mind as we move forward um, into what comes next. In the meanwhile, uh, we hope you will join us in this Easter season, uh, the good news of Christ's resurrection for our justification, uh, that you will join us in letting the bird fly.